Grab your popcorn and snacks. Find a comfy spot, take a seat or lie down, and let me transport you to a place of fantasy, ghost stories, ancient legends, odd creatures, alien encounters, and other magical topics. You may even decide to join the conversation. From faraway lands to your own backyard, with a small dash of pixie dust, turn out the lights and open your minds. The journey is about to begin. Good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are. Some places it's still the afternoon. For me, it's the evening. And for folks on the East Coast, it's also the evening. My name is Charlotte, and I'll be your host tonight. I am the owner and operator of the California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team, www.californiahaunts.org. We're located up and down the state of California, Washington, Oregon, and parts of Hawaii. I want to welcome you all here. We've got a special show tonight in that... Um, my real job was, I'm kind of semi-retired now, but my real job was a crime beat reporter for many years with a paper in Woodland. And I covered a lot of uh, murders, uh, murder cases. And uh, so as I was looking for guests, this one kind of hit home with me. Um, we never had, let me get this adjusted. We never had the opportunity, I never had the opportunity to, to cover anything quite like this. But, um, you know, I've done... Of course, like everybody else, reading about this stuff. But I, I have had my fair share of, of uh, coverage for cases, like, you know, murder cases. So I'm excited to have my next my, my guest on today. Her name is Lena Durholly. I hope I hope I pronounced it right. I'm horrible with names, but uh, I think you guys will find this very interesting and what the, what this gentleman did, and maybe maybe we can get into his his psyche to see why he did it. You know, who knows why these guys do this? I mean, like right now, Scott Peterson just had his trial life i believe it's life imprisonment without parole so he doesn't have the death penalty anymore but you know it's just it's just so it's just so frightening and appalling when something like this happens and yeah anyway so without further ado i'm going to bring the guest on okay hello hey how are you good how are you i'm doing well thanks thanks for having me sure it's great i'm glad you came on glad to be here thanks charlotte Tell me about yourself. Well, um, I'm a licensed psychotherapist and I'm certified in something called Imago Relationship Therapy. So that's uh, sort of a relational type of therapy that we mostly do with couples, but I do work with individuals as well. And I am the author of the true crime book, My Daddy is a Hero, How Chris Watts Went from Family Man to Family Killer about the Chris Watts case out of Colorado back in August of 2018. And I have another book coming out in April, um, but that's going to be a nonfiction, not true crime. So I've sort of started to dabble into writing a bit more. That's great. What made you so interested in writing about Chris Watts? Well, I think I have to go back to a personal story, you know, when I, when I really think about why was I interested in writing about Chris Watts, you know, Mm -hmm. I, in my twenties, I had been in a relationship with somebody with narcissistic personality disorder. And when you've never been in something like that before, or an abusive relationship before, you don't really fully understand what's going on while you're in it. So once I got out of it, I sort of made a vow to myself that one, I would never let that happen to me again. And two, I wanted to work with people and help get them out of these bad relationships or help them identify warning signs, things that I hadn't seen when I was in my relationship, but could only see once I was out of that relationship. So, you know, when I saw Chris Watts and watched the story unfold and explored more about him, what really baffled me was that he didn't have any of these typical warning signs that we would normally see in somebody who does something like this. So, you know, I heard you just mention Scott Peterson. Mm -hmm. Scott Peterson, you know, people kind of draw parallels between Scott Peterson and Chris Watts, but Scott Peterson was more of the typical type. You know, he was he was sociopathic, but also it, you know, very charming, sort of had that handsome, charming allure to him was kind of a smooth talker. Whereas Chris Watts, while he, you know, had worked out and to a lot of people, I would say he was objectively good looking at the time of Mm -hmm. the murders. 
he was described as someone who didn't really have a personality being, you know, very dull, very quiet, very submissive. Usually, you know, men who murder their spouses are very controlling and domineering. And he was the opposite. So I was really fascinated and also horrified at how could this woman, his wife, Shanann Watts, have ever seen this coming? I mean, there's no way she could have. Mm-hmm. And so I wanted to do a deep dive into understanding is how does someone who seems so quiet and passive and this perfect father and husband who has no history, no red flags, you know, you go back through his childhood, teachers, peers, everything, nobody had one bad thing to say about this man. So, you know, it was sort of a deep dive investigation of my own to figure out how does somebody this dark how are they able to hide that side of them for so long? So that was my motivation. Well, it's just like right now, you know, everybody's really glued to their TVs and stuff over the Gabby Petito case too, you know, and nobody knows whether he really did it or not, but still, I mean, I mean, when you look at the videos of this couple, they're getting along great, you know, they're, they're, they're hiking, they're doing their thing. And then to have this happen, who knows, you know what I mean? And it's just, it's just something just snaps within them at some point. Yeah, I I think it's interesting you bring up the Gabby Petito case, because when that was unfolding, you know, a lot of friends were texting me, did you hear about this? It reminds me so much of Chris Watts. And so there are some some parallels to this sort of social media presence and the seemingly perfect relationship that's presented on social media when it it not isn't necessarily like that. And as we've seen with the Gabby Petito case. You know, we have the body cam footage in, in that where they're, oh, yeah. you know, specific altercation, looking at his social media, his Pinterest, you know, he has an obsession with serial killers and mm-hmm. really dark things and gore and violence. And while that on its own is not, you know, a lot of us are, you know, obsessed with serial killers and things like that. We don't go and murder people or even have the right. urge to, but you know, we are getting a pretty interesting picture of Brian Laundry. Um, mm-hmm. you know, and, and getting some of those clues, which is, which is interesting with Chris Watts, you know, we didn't really have any of those clues until he murdered his family. Right. And the other thing too, you know, that traveling that they did too, to be, you know, you always can tell, I always had a saying that when you travel with your friends, you could always tell if you were going to get along with them or not, or you were going to be friends for life because you're in such close contact with somebody and with, with what they were doing like 24 hours a day in that little van. Yeah. You know, it was either going to work. It was either going to go well or somebody was going to lose their temper somewhere along the line. Yeah. It's the ultimate test, isn't it? Traveling with somebody yeah. or living with someone, but yeah, especially in those small close quarters, that's definitely yeah. the tension so we'll see- of the building from what yeah. I'm hearing. Yeah. yeah, so we'll see what happens with that. Whether you know he's even innocent until proven guilty at this point, but we'll see. You know. Yeah. So, um, tell me about Chris Watts. What what was he? I mean, what do we know about him behind closed doors? We know the public persona, yeah. but what was he like behind closed doors? Well, you know, uh, childhood. If we go back to childhood, his mother and sister, you know, would have described him as being a very quiet child. Mm-hmm. They always wanted to know what he was thinking and feeling, because I think from childhood, he didn't display a lot of emotion. And so when you look at interviews with his friends and people who knew him, you know, they'll all say he was a nice guy, but nobody really knew who he was. There wasn't a lot of depth. There wasn't a lot of opportunity to know Chris Watts at a deeper level. So while he was nice, I think he was very flat, hard to get to know, um, didn't show emotion very much. Behind closed doors with his wife, you know, I think the interesting thing about this case is that we have the public had access to a lot of her text messages with friends. And in the, you know, up until the six weeks before she was killed, we're watching her text messages with her friends unfold from feeling very happy with her husband and their life together and very proud of him. You know, I think she was, she had a lot of pride in him because she thought he was a very hands-on father and a very doting husband. And so when he started having an affair, which was sort of the one of the catalysts that led to the murders, she slowly started to see a change in his behavior, even through text messages and phone calls. And so she's texting with her friends, telling them, you know, she's shocked. It's like the rug was pulled out from under her 
this man was not the man she knew. And he changed, you know, like that, just like mm. 180 on her in a matter of weeks. And it was so shocking to her. It totally rocked her world. She was distraught and, and sobbing, you know, so I think it really showed that, again, he really was this great actor and he played this role so well that when he finally did have an opportunity to, to have his dark side come out, it was really sudden, it was out of the blue, and it was it was so different from the person his wife Shanann had known. So I think, again, that's one of the scariest parts of this case. And one of the things that I think fascinated so many people about it was, again, this idea that out of the blue, this seemingly supportive, loving husband and father could just turn on you like that, not just turn on you. But, you know, we have a lot of evidence that he was plotting the murders weeks in advance. And so, wow. you know, plotting, plotting the murders if his own children and his pregnant wife, you know, for people who don't know the story, he, he killed his pregnant wife and his daughters who were three and four at the time, just so he could start a life with a woman he had been having an affair with for a few weeks. So, you know, that really, I think, shows the depravity of the type of person, you know, Chris Watts is. When you talk about sociopaths, I mean, when I think about a sociopath, I think Ted Bundy, he was like the perfect sociopath. When you talk about narcissists, what is the difference, to clar clarify for people that don't know, between a narcissist and a sociopath? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, and, you know, sometimes people get confused between what's the difference between a sociopath and a psychopath. And mm -hmm, you know, sociopath and psychopath, they're so similar. I'll just kind of lump them in together. Although some okay. people would say, you know, psychopath is probably worse than a sociopath. But if we're talking about a psychopath, which is, you know, the terminology I do use in the book, it's somebody without conscience and oh. it's somebody without feelings or attachments to other people, no empathy. Uh, so yeah, when you think about somebody like Ted Bundy, thinking about no empathy, impulsivity, likes risk, likes thrill, you know, um, doesn't care about human, hu other humans at all. And uh, but with someone like Ted Bundy, again, you know, you may look into his history and see some of those warning signs. But what I learned in my research is that psychopaths do not have to be violent and that there's many psychopaths among us that never go to jail, never go to prison and never even commit crimes. But that definition of them would be that they just don't have attachments or feelings, and they they know that they're different from a young age. And so what they do to fit in, you know, to society with normal people with feelings is that they craft this mask and they mimic other people. And that's how they learn to sort of fit into society because they just don't know what it's like to have, you know, real feelings towards other people. And um, one of the things that Chris Watts says in one of his interviews is he, I think, identifies in some way with um, not having normal emotion or attachment to others. And he's talking about an imaginary situation of being in a grocery store and losing your children. And so anybody who's a parent and who has children knows that if they're at the playground or at the grocery store, if they lose sight of their child for even two seconds, you know, their heart just drops into their stomach. But Chris Watts was, you know, saying, you know, if I lost my children in the grocery store, I wouldn't panic. I would just walk around calmly. And so for me, that was a real indication, you know, of his psychopathy because mm -hmm. he, you know, the psychopaths don't feel that panic. Although he did arguably when he, he thought he might be caught, that was the one moment where you could see anxiety building in him. But generally, again, you know, losing his children at a grocery store is kind of a non-issue for him. He would be very calm about that. So that was just one thing of many that he said, I think, that gave a lot of indications that he wasn't fully, you know, attached right. at all, actually, to his children, which is, which is rare to have that mm -hmm. real detachment to your own biological children. Uh, narcissism is on a spectrum and it has a lot of similarities to psychopathy. It's categorized by lack of empathy, entitlement and exploitation of others. So psychopaths also can, you know, definitely exploit others, have low empathy, but I think narcissists are less severe than psychopaths, you know, on the spectrum, narcissists can have some empathy. Uh, there is 
There are situations if they're not severely narcissistic where you may be able to work with them and teach them empathy. So I think narcissism is thought of as something that's a little less severe than psychopathy, mm -hmm. but still has a lot of the same traits. Um, narcissism is also very much categorized, you know, if when you look at it as um, somebody who's very self-centered as well. And, you know, there can be that vanity, that grandiose aspect to them where, you know, they want every bit, they want to be the center of attention. They want everybody to look at them. But narcissists don't have to be like that either. And there's different subtypes of narcissism where it's basically just, you know, the narcissist just wants to be recognized as superior mm -hmm. and they feel very angry when they're not and they feel very entitled to special treatment. They want to be recognized by others. And, and so often narcissists care what other people think. And, you know, psychopaths often don't. So there's some some small differences there. Interesting. Um, when you look at this case, and like you say, her text messages were kind of um, revealing, you know, as, as things started, started, you know, he started changing. How... How was he at that point? How was he at home with his family? I mean, when she talked about changes, what changes are we talking about? You know, well, what happened was uh, Shanann, his wife, was in direct sales. And so she she worked from home. The kids were not in school or daycare at the time, you know, over the summer. So both her and Chris's families lived in North Carolina. So she took their girls for five weeks to North Carolina and he joined them, I believe, for the, the sixth week of the trip. So they were gone five weeks and he was only there for the last week. So the second they left town, uh, he had had a little flirtation with the coworker going a few weeks before they left through text message. But mm -hmm. the second they left for North Carolina, he, you know, went full force into a physical sexual affair with his affair partner and um, so they weren't ever around Chris while mm -hmm. the affair was happening. And so the only thing she was seeing was, you know, he wasn't as available to talk to her on the phone. She would call him and he wouldn't pick up. You know, he seemed disinterested, which was normally not the case. Uh, at one point, though, as weeks got into it, as weeks the weeks he was into the affair, maybe three, four weeks in, right before he was supposed to meet them in North Carolina, he actually did tell Shanann that he was thinking about separating from her. And this was a shock to her because, you know, right before, you know, they left for North Carolina, she was telling her friends how intimate they were, you know, how they had had sex in the pantry, you <laughs> know, right before, like everything was normal and fine. And so that was the shocking that he gradually seemed more and more distant until all of a sudden just out of the blue he's like I want a separation when she's pregnant and he was the one I guess who wanted the third child so she was shocked about that you know you wanted this third child now I'm pregnant and now all of a sudden you want a separation you know so she was really confused and uh when he finally arrived in North Carolina he was really distant and cold with her and that really really shook her so it was very different. Um, he was like two different people from the from right before they left to North Carolina until she left. He became a completely different person to her. And how long were they married at this point? Uh, six years married and together for eight. So they dated for two years before they got married. Well, technically, they were still in the what they call the honeymoon phase, too, at this point, you know, at this time in their marriage. Yeah. You know, honeymoon phase. Some people have the the. Uh, the uh, phrase, the seven-year itch, you know, it just yeah. depends on the couple. But yeah, you know, they had settled in more. They had two little kids, which is really draining, uh, you know. So they had these responsibilities when you have young children and work and things like that. And so they, you know, they fell into a routine like any other married couple with young children. And I think, you know, part of the appeal for him when he met his affair partner is that she was single and they were doing all these exciting things and he got a taste of, you know, what it was like to be unattached again. Mm -hmm. And she was doing things with him that he really wanted to going to the racetracks with him and surfing in the sand dunes in Colorado and, you know, all these things she was able to do because she was this single woman. So he got, you know, a taste of this bachelor life again and 
got a got a sense of what it would be like if he didn't have a family anymore. Um, and his solution was, you know, obviously depraved right. and shocking and not in the least bit normal. Like normal people do not come to those decisions to kill their family. So again, well, that's she, why the case was so, I think, uh, captive. It is. It's craziness. Um, literally. <laughs> was she aware of the plans he was making at all? Um, to kill them? Yeah. <laughs> oh, no, no. I mean, I... I talk about this a lot because the very last uh, images or footage or proof that we have of Shanann Watts being alive mm -hmm. is um, on her doorbell camera. So he killed his family, you know, the early hours. Well, she got, you know, Sunday night into Monday morning. So those mm -hmm. early hours, she had gone away for the weekend on um, a business trip with her company and she had left the kids with him. So she, I think she left on a fr Thursday or Friday and she got, she was supposed to get back Sunday night and the flight was delayed by bad weather. So she got in around 1 2 AM on the Monday morning. And, you know, she left him for the, the weekend with the kids. And at that point he was sort of starting to fake to her, you know, that he may be interested in reconciling. I believe that he was just telling her what she wanted to hear because he mm -hmm. knew that, she would no longer be in his way anymore. And so he was kind of, you know, going along with her that they were going to go for this romantic weekend in Aspen once she was back. So she believed they were going to Aspen together to work on their marriage. Uh, she believed, I think, that he was coming around mm -hmm. and that he would be open to working on the marriage. So when she, her best friend dropped her off at her house after the airport and she walked into a home where her husband was basically waiting to kill her and was going to kill her children as well. And she had no clue. I mean, no clue as you know, she's just walking in thinking she's getting back with her family and she's, you know, looking forward to trying to save her marriage and absolutely no idea that this mm -hmm. was the fate that awaited her again, which is so right. incredibly terrifying, you know, to think that you could have no idea of the person that you've been, you know, living with and married mm -hmm. to for six plus years. It's crazy. What about the girlfriend? Did, did she know he was plotting this? I think that's up for debate. Like that's a big topic in the, the community of the people who discuss this case is that some people really believe that she had something to do with it. And then some people believe that she had nothing to do with it at all. Um, now, did she know he was married? She, she would say she didn't, but, uh, or that she, you know, she thought he was getting separated. I think mm -hmm. most people think that she was probably well aware that um, he was married. Shanann Watts's Facebook profile was public. So anybody could search, you know, Google search and find it. Mm -hmm. She was posting about her husband all the time. Um, but you know, I don't think we'll ever really know definitively how much the affair partner knew or didn't know. Um, she had her cell phone card destroyed. You know, there wasn't a lot of evidence. Um, she deleted a lot of the, the text messages between them. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, a lot of people would say that's suspicious. I, you know, her excuse was she just, you know, didn't want people having access to whatever, maybe her raunchy or sexual texts or something that might embarrass her. But, you know, I don't think we'll ever fully know the extent, but my hunch is that she didn't know that he was a murderer. I, I don't mm -hmm. think that she knew that. So that's my personal opinion though. When you say that he planned, he started planning this, how, how did he do that? How did he go about planning it? Do you do research on the internet or how do you do that? So he spoke to a woman named Sherilyn Cadle. So when he was in prison, this woman named Sherilyn Cadle, she wanted to write a book. Uh, she was really the only person, you know, he, uh, that he agreed to see and was going to, you know, write a book. But I think his thinking and what she approached it as sort of being a, a religious woman and that this could be a book about his path to redemption, you know, through Jesus Christ and Christianity. And so he spoke with her and wrote letters back and forth with her. And so she has hard copies of letters that he wrote where he is, elaborating on previous confessions that he has given before. And one of the things that he admits in these letters is that 
he tried to get Shanann to miscarry when he went to North Carolina by giving her Oxycontin, or I guess he had researched that on Google, you know? Mm -hmm. So I think the first plot for him was trying to get her to miscarry the baby because he thought it would be easier to leave her. So I think, you know, initially maybe his plan was, well, I can divorce her, leave her if the baby's not around, but uh, that didn't end up working. So I think what, you know, what I recall is that he said in his letters that that was the point where he knew basically he had to kill them was when the miscarriage attempt didn't work. And so we're not really sure exactly the process of how he went to, you know, how he was going to kill them in his mind, but mm -hmm. there is strong evidence of premeditation because he, um, he put their bodies at the oil tank site where he worked. So he worked out in the oil fields and one of the oil fields that he worked at where he disposed of the bodies, which was a location called Survey 319 in Colorado. Um, this was a remote site and one of his, co he contacted one of his coworkers the day before the murders and told the coworker not to come to the site the next day, that he would go there alone. So, you know, the day before he's putting out all the feelers and making sure that he's going to be at this remote site alone, which I just think it's too much of a coincidence, you know, mm -hmm. that, and that he was, he admitted to premeditation and he's telling coworkers, hey, don't worry, I'll just go alone. You don't worry about it. You don't have to meet me there. So, you know, he killed them in the early morning hours and, and then he, um, he says that he first attempted to kill the daughters in their beds by smothering them with the pillows, but I guess that he, the, those attempts failed, but he had strangled his wife in her bed. And so she was already deceased, but the girls were still alive. So you know, he loaded her body into the truck, which was actually one of the the pieces of information that really cracked the case. His neighbor had a security camera outside. The camera was pointed at Chris Watts's driveway, although you couldn't see him, you know, carrying or dragging a body mm -hmm. out. You see him going back and forth and loading the truck. So you see Shanann Watts come in through the doorbell camera. You never see her leave, but you see Chris Watts leave with the truck. And then some, you know, some sleuths found out if you zoom in on that security camera footage, there's parts where you can see shadows, where you can see the little girls come run out to him and he picks them up and puts them in the truck. So you know that the girls are still alive at this point. Um, and then he makes this 45 minute drive with these poor toddler babies with their feet hanging over their dead mother's body who he's put on the bed of the truck and you know puts the little girls sitting right over their dead mother they have they're traumatized they have no idea what's been what's going on they're scared and then you know without getting into too much detail you know right. he, he does you know essentially smother the girls with their blankets at the oil field but the most, the sickest part of this case that I also think really just blew people's minds at how awful this was is that he put the little girl's bodies in this two separate oil tanks after he killed them. And then he buried, you know, Shanann in a shallow grave. And he confesses again to this woman, Sherilyn Cadle, through his letters that after he's done this, he says he's felt absolutely no remorse. And that, you know, the, the first place his mind goes is, did he remember to feed the dog? You know, things like that. And so then after that, he texts his girlfriend a picture of a sunflower. He goes to work, you know, is acting totally normal. He calls his real estate agent and says they're going to put their house on the market. He calls his children's daycare and says they're not going to be coming back to school anymore. So all of a sudden he's killed them. And within hours, he's making these plans, you know, to sell his house, to to take his kids out of school with no explanation. And so he's really brazen and emboldened, if you think about it, you know, that absolute no remorse. He just killed his entire family in cold blood with his bare hands. And then he's going about, you know, um, playing fantasy football and things like that and signing up for the fantasy football league. It's just really, 
it's just so surreal to think about someone's capable of this. You can't imagine what those little girls were going through too. Like you say, he had them sitting in the back, you know, with the, with, with their feet literally almost on their mother. I mean, it's a, this is the worst part of all of it. It's absolutely zero empathy for his own children. I mean, any normal person has empathy for children in general. I mean, but mm -hmm. to not to put your own children through that is the most selfish, heinous, disgusting. Like, you know, that's that's the psychopathy in it for me, really, is like that there's no remorse, there's no empathy, there's no attachment to your own children whatsoever. Um, it it just pure selfishness like all he wanted was them out of the way so he could have this new life and he just mm -hmm. disposed of them like garbage just like they were garbage it's really it's crazy you know i think none of us can wrap our heads around it so how did he get caught did somebody turn him in did he talk to some you know did he tell somebody what, what he did or well, I think a lot of people believe that he didn't have time to cover his tracks. So what's really interesting is Shanann Watts was a very social person. She had a lot of really close friends and she was constantly in touch with them. You know, she'd be signing on to Facebook at 7 a.m. So her best friend, um, Nikki, had dropped her off. They were on the work trip together and she had dropped her off from the airport the evening she was killed. The next morning, Nikki knows that Shanann has a an appointment with her obstetrician to check on, you know, the baby and how the baby's doing. And Shanann isn't responding to texts. Mm -hmm. She um, misses her OB appointment. So the friend goes to check, you know, on see, did she show up to her OB appointment? So the friend starts getting concerned at this point, you know, her friend is not thinking that they've been murdered, but she's knows that Shanann's pregnant. She's got toddlers. She also had a couple autoimmune diseases. So I think she was worried she might've passed out and needed help. Mm -hmm. And so right away, Nikki, the best friend calls law enforcement and wants them to do a wellness check. And this is literally, you know, within hours of Shanann being murdered. And so Chris was at work at the time. And so, you know, he had just left his truck, you know, loaded his truck and left. And he was at work when he gets a call from Nikki and Shanann's friends who are worried about her. And they're saying, hey, Chris, we're going to call the police. And then he's like, no, no, don't call the police, you know, <laughs> trying to get them to not do that. But the um, the police show up for a wellness check. And Chris comes home and Chris lets them in the house. And while they're in the house, they discover a lot of really strange things. Um, one, Shanann's car is still there. They live in Colorado. It's not New York City where you can just, you know, walk places. Mm -hmm. um, the car seats are still in the car. Her wallet's there, her medication, her car keys, you know, everything is there. And so it's starting to look really bizarre. How did this woman leave with her two children, you know? without any of her stuff. And so as they're going through the house, they find her cell phone in the couch, you know, and under the couch cushions. And so I think it started to look progressively stranger. And so then, you know, more the detectives got involved and then the media got involved. And, you know, once the media gets involved, then it can become spiral into a circus. And, mm -hmm. and Chris agreed to do an interview with the media. So all these people are watching him on um, you know, the front porch of his house, this beautiful missing pregnant woman and the daughters pleading for them to come home. But anybody who watched that video felt it was super disingenuous. You know, everybody had that gut feeling something's not right with this guy. Right. So, you know, the pressure was on and then they got him into, you know, the uh, Colorado Bureau of Investigation, got him in to do some questioning. They got him to take a polygraph. Uh, he failed the polygraph, so they kind of forced him into a confession. But his initial confession, he lied and said that he didn't kill his children. He said that Shanann came home. He told her he wanted to, a divorce, and she freaked out. And then she went and strangled the children. And then he went and, you know, strangled her in a fit of rage. So that was the story he was initially telling, Um that didn't hold up well because when the autopsies came back of the children, their cause of death was smothering and not strangulation, you know? So there was a lot right. of discrepancies with the stories. Um, and then instead of going to trial, he ended up pleading guilty to all four counts of murder. 
um, including, you know, the baby, the two girls, mm -hmm. or it was a termination of the pregnancy, unlawful termination of a pregnancy, and then the murders of Shanann and the girls. But at that point, he hadn't confessed to anything. He just had pleaded guilty. Months later, the detectives, you know, were still haunted by this case. So they flew out to his prison in Wisconsin and, and extracted the first confession of him where this was the first time where he, he admitted to killing the children as well as Shanann. Um, and it wasn't just, hey, I'm pleading guilty. He actually said and described how he did it. And then after that, you know, the letters that he wrote to Cheryl and Cadel came out and all of those different confessions. Um, and the, the confessions and the stories, they just kept get, getting worse and worse and worse. You know, just when you think it couldn't get any worse, it, it did, you know. And he mm -hmm. just really turned out to be a really really sick person but again he hit it he hit it so well he hit it from everybody who knew him could it be a case too that maybe it was uh the perfect storm with this other woman that maybe she was able to trigger whatever that was that that was hiding within him yeah it could it could very well have been um that yeah i think it was always within him but he never had an opportunity or never like mm -hmm. a reason to do it you know and this this somehow gave him a reason when I was studying psychopaths for this book and learning about them, one of the most interesting things that I found was that they say when a psychopath runs into a problem, they will look for antisocial solutions. Whereas mm -hmm. if a, you know, a, a normal, I keep saying normal person, someone who's not a psychopath mm -hmm. um, runs into a problem, they look for what they call pro-social solutions. So Shanann was the example of the person looking for pro-social solutions. So the marriage was in trouble. She was reading self-help books and sending them to him and trying to get him into counseling. And also she was reflecting inward and saying, what did I do wrong? How can I change? How can I help you? What do I need to do differently? Whereas, you know, his mind went to how can I force a miscarriage in my wife? And then how can I murder my family? So again, it just shows you how the two different minds operate, you know, when given a problem that that's, that was where his mind went on how to solve the problem. From the time he started plotting to murder his family to his arrest, how, how, how much time had elapsed? Oh, just weeks. Just, I would probably say maybe three weeks, huh. maybe three weeks, um, because the the real plotting, I think, started right around the time when he was in North. So maybe even two weeks. It might have been two weeks since he started plotting to the time he was arrested. So we'll say two to three weeks. Okay. Okay. And the oil drums, that intrigues me. Did did the did he lead the police to the oil drums or did somebody find him? Yeah. So he in his confession, he told them where the bodies were. Mm -hmm. So they had had, well, they had actually had a drone out there and they had seen kind of a sheet and one of the sheets had been removed from the bed when they were in the house. And so they sort of knew, you know, the general area, but he told them that the girls were in these two different oil tanks. And so they had to send out a whole crew, you know, that was a very difficult process to get them out for many reasons, you know, just hazardous material and you know they're in hazmat suits and all these things but mm -hmm. another really you know tragic part of this case is there's so many people you know who've been traumatized by this case and all the first responders you know had a lot of trauma from you know, can you imagine having to pull these baby girls out of these oil tanks you know and uh, the descriptions are very gruesome about you know so i would i wouldn't even go oh. into that on this show mm -hmm. but just the state that their bodies were in and that people, human beings had to go and see that. And, you know, it's just so, and they're in their little pajamas, you know, it's just a really horrific, horrific situation. Um, and one of the detectives on the case, actually, he retired because of PTSD from this case. He was so traumatized by this case and what happened that he ended up retiring. So again, it just goes to show how grotesque and awful, you know, and the ripple effects this had on the entire community of people who had to deal with, you know, the, the actions of Chris Watts. How, um, how big were these tanks? Were they hard to open? Well, the, uh, forget, but the, you know, the hatch was really small. It was like maybe, you know, 
eight inches around this circular where he even said in one of his confessions, you know, that they had a tuft of hair on the tent because he had to force the bodies in through this really mm -hmm. small passageway. So while the oil tanks were, you know, large in itself, the hatch, the openings were very small. So. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Cause I was wondering, cause you know, they say that people that have those mental issues, their strength is like twice of what it normally would be. Yeah. I think, you know, rage and aggression and he was in an enormous amount of rage and hatred for his wife at the time of the killings. And I think um, there was also interesting, he was a huge Metallica fan. And I always have to say, I'm not blaming Metallica right. and I'm not saying him listening to Metallica music made him do this. Mm -hmm. But after, after he killed them, he Googled the lyrics to this Metallica song called Battery. And there's these lines in Battery about like, you know, aggression and lunacy has found me. And then there's a line about cannot kill the family. I mean, there's, it's, he Googled it minutes after, you know, 10 minutes after he killed his mm -hmm. family and it's about aggression and, you know, lunacy. And the song is not about what Metallica wrote that song. It was not about killing a family or, you know, or anything like that. But um, mm -hmm. it's also interesting when, you know, the song's called batteries think of oil tanks, batteries, you know, things mm -hmm. like that. So there's all these parallels, but what, when I say what's, you know, interesting about that is I think the Google search showed you the state of mind that he was in, which was mm -hmm. just, you know, aggression and rage um, and taking all of that aggression and rage out on innocent people um, because he had no, he had no self-reflection or self-awareness about himself, you know, so mm -hmm. he was essentially blaming Shanann and his kids for all his problems and blaming them for him selfishly not being able to get what he wanted, almost like a toddler, if you think about it, you know. So um, it was a lot of misdirected hatred and rage. The title of your book is My Daddy is a Hero. Mm -hmm. Why pick that title? Yeah, so the, the title of the book was I mean, probably the hardest thing about the book. I mean, there were so many titles that um, you know, we kind of bounced around, but, um, Bella, his daughter, you know, maybe weeks or months before he killed the family, Shanann had captured a video of Bella singing this song called my daddy is a hero. And, um, you know, she posted it on Facebook and the idea of my book was this, I, you know, that somebody can be exactly the opposite. You know, there's the irony to it is that, um, this man who his daughter thought was a hero, who everybody thought was this hero, you know, mm -hmm. ended up being one of the worst psychopaths. I think we, we know in modern, in our modern history, you know, like we'll look back at this case as, you know, probably the most famous case of a family annihilator that um, we will have seen in our lifetimes for sure. What happened to his girlfriend? Nobody knows. Um, I believe, you know, that she changed her name for sure. Um, but she went into hiding. She's, you know, became one of the most hated women in America during that time. People really hated her um, because we had that public dump of the documents from the law enforcement. Some of her Google searches were in there, so they were able to recover some of her Google searches. And she had searched, you know, while Shanann was still missing, like Amber Fry, who is, you know, Scott Peterson's right. mistress. How much did Amber Fry make on a book deal? So people thought that was really shady and unsavory and sh showed a real lack of character. And I think that also, you know, in some people's minds contributed to maybe her having some guilt in some of this. But um, in, you know, in any event, no matter, regardless of what she knew or didn't know, um, people really, really hated her. And so I think- sure. Um, she changed her names, went somewhere, started over, but nobody's been able to figure out where she is. Um, so that's been really interesting too. Nobody knows. That's another question I was thinking, um, whether she knew he was married or not. Mm -hmm. The question that, that, that I'm curious about is what makes a woman go after the husband of somebody else? You know, there's probably many, many different reasons. Um, it's, Definitely not something I would ever recommend to anybody. 
I don't know why she did. I mean, I I don't know enough about her. And that's, right. you know, I kind of tried to stay away from the psychology of her because I had so little to go on. Um, I, you know, you could look at some things like she came from a divorced home and a divorced background, you know, so I don't know if there were things in her childhood, perhaps. Yeah. But again, that would be like total speculation on my part. Sure. But I imagine there might be some kind of, you know, insecurities, some kind of trauma, something, you know, that um, would make her do that. Mm -hmm. Unless, unless she really, unless she really thought he was separating, if she really thought he was separating, you know, maybe that's a different story. But if she actively, from what I understand, it seems like she actively pursued a married man, at least in the beginning. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So um, going back a little bit, he must have had like you say, his personality changed completely. So he must have been really short-tempered with the family, you know, to the buildup of this, because he was so happy to be going out and doing his own thing, and he'd have to come home and have to get into that routine. So he must have been real, you know, just like you say, the disposition, I mean, nasty, everything. Well, you know, again, um, they weren't together that long. So when he was in, when they were in North Carolina together, he was definitely diff very cold, you know, Shanann's mother noticed he was driving really fast. So he was, um, he was short and cold and aloof um, while they were on vacation in North Carolina, um, really distant. And again, that was totally different than how he had always been. Mm -hmm. when they got back to Colorado. There was really only a few days that they were together before she left again on that trip. So there was, I mean, the time that they had together before he killed them was days, you know, maybe a week, 10 days at most, but it was, um, it was almost nothing. You know, it was really like he made this decision, this quick decision and he, he implemented it right mm -hmm. away. You know, like he made up his mind and he was going to do it. From your perspective and in, in, in your knowledge of, of the, the, the way the human mind works mm -hmm. up to the point that he killed her and, you know, that final result, what do you think his mind thought of her? Because I know, you know, he had, like you say, he had this really cool life going with the mistress. Mm -hmm. But what, what was he thinking, you know, when, when, when he looked, dang, sorry about that. When he looked at her, that's what I get for being Italian and moving my hands. Yeah, his wife, you mean? Yeah. I think he hated, he hated his wife um, when he killed her up until that point. Again, I think he irrationally blamed her for mm -hmm. a lot of problems he was very passive and she was, you know, very much in control of the relationship, but that was because that was how he portrayed himself to be since the very beginning. Yeah. And so, you know, he came into his, her life when she was actually going, um, recently divorced. So she was married before him. She was struggling with a lot of health issues. She was at a very weak and dark place in her life. And he kind of swooped in and, you know, acted like this Prince charming and, really she wasn't really interested in a relationship she tried to push him away but he came on really strong and he would sort her medications and pill boxes and drove her to her colonoscopy you know within weeks of knowing her um mm -hmm. and so she really fell for him because she was like oh this is a man who lets me be myself and he's just kind of lets me take the lead and so they fell into this dynamic where she was the one who made the decisions she had to take charge personality and he portrayed himself as this totally laid back guy who didn't care, you know, like he would defer to her. And that's how he made it seem that he liked it that way, even. Mm -hmm. But I think secretly he began to feel very resentful. I think he was resentful again of just being caught in, you know, the monotony of having children and not feeling mm -hmm. like he was able to have freedom or do what he wanted, even though he's a grown man. He obviously, if he wanted to have decision, have decision making, you know, options in his life, he very much could have gone to his wife and said, hey, I'm unhappy about this. I want, you know, but he didn't do any of that. Mm -hmm. So he just kind of just repressed all of this stuff and, you know, took it out on his wife. And I think it just built up and built up and built up. And then he met this other woman. And then he th thought he fell in love with this other woman. And then in his mind, he had even more of a reason to hate his wife. And then by extension of that, hate his children, because again, they were preventing him from getting what he believed that he deserved and that he was entitled to, which again is, you know, the narcissism in him that I'm entitled to all of this. 
my family's in the way. I'm just going to murder them so I can have what I want. Um, you know, I can kind of, in a way, you can kind of see his point of view in a twisted sort of way in that, you know, he goes out with the other woman and he's got this great life going on. There's no responsibilities. And then he goes home. You got two young kids that are screaming all the time. You know, so you know how kids are. Mm-hmm. Not screaming, but, you know, the problems yeah. that go with that. Yeah. And he's just, he's just like, wow. You know, and that keeps piling. And then with his personality being what it is, it just keeps piling up and piling up and piling up till, till you get to that final, you know, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm going to plan this and maybe I won't do anything about it. And then finally, boom. Right. Yeah. And I mean, I think, again, the vast majority of people would get a divorce, you know, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that would be it. I would never, ever think of murdering their children, you know. But again, that's just why this case has not just gripped America, but gripped the world. This case had an international cult following, you know. Mm -hmm. I think I talked to someone once who said that he was in Africa and the Watts case was like on the TV at the time in Africa, you know, that was how much this case gripped people because it is so rare again just everything about it from the oil tanks to mm-hmm. this picture perfect family on social media that you know these beautiful pictures in the sunset of a really gorgeous family all of this you know i think was really just shocking it's just not something we see um, mm-hmm. it's really rare for a parent you know not super rare but it does happen unfortunately but um, obviously it's not the norm by any, any stretch. So, so you think this thing was put, it was pre-planned. He just didn't gather them up and take them to where he was working. Cause I mean, that would have been easy access for him because he knew he had those tanks there. Yeah. I think it was pre-planned just because at one point he said it was that, you know, he had decided at one point, you know, that he had to get rid of them, I guess, in his mind. Mm-hmm. Um, but also I just think that the setup of making sure he was alone at the oil fields. Right. You know, Shows, yeah. Strong, strong indication of premeditation. There's another thing that I didn't talk about that um, I do talk about in my book as other evidence of premeditation. A few days before he murdered his family, he was at home with the girls alone, you know, while Shanann was on that trip. Mm-hmm. And the girls were playing with one of these like life-size dolls, you know, I don't know, it was like maybe, you know, that big. Mm-hmm. and they put the doll on a couch and covered it with a tarp. It was like a twister, a twister mat, but it was like not the one, not the side with the circles, the white part. And mm-hmm. so the doll looked like a corpse. It's all its feet were just sticking out and it's on this black leather couch. And this is a few days before Chris murders the family. He takes a picture of that doll under the tarp that looks like a corpse in a body bag. Um, and he just texts it to Shanann with no caption. That's it. This is a few days before he murders the family. It's so creepy. Um, it was on her social media. She posted it to her social media with like, you know, laughter, laughter emojis. Like it was, you know, a joke and she was making jokes about it. Like, Hey, at Mm -hmm. least you know they have each other's backs. They're covering each other, you know, things like that. And Mm -hmm. people were, were joking about it. But, you know, I believe it was a, a taunt to her. I believe, again, like it had in his mind, like he knew what he was going to do. And this was this, again, the sick, depraved part of him is like, oh, this is like the foreshadowing of what's to come. You know, it's really, it's really creepy, actually. Um, Let's talk about the, his his parents and her parents. I mean, what did his parents say after this happened? What, what was their reaction? I think their initial reaction was they at least desperately wanted to believe that Shanann had killed the kids, you know, Mm -hmm. they didn't think their son could do any wrong. You know, they stood Mm -hmm. by him. Um, There was a lot of criticism towards them for how much they stood by him. They also, you know, said bad things about Shanann and the press and they just weren't, they weren't talking very favorably about her. It just wasn't a good look, I think. Um, But You know, I think a lot of their refusal to believe that he did that. And also there's a lot of refusal of accountability, I think, um, from that family. Again, you know, maybe that's an indication into like how how some of his narcissism developed, you know, is that he he could never do any wrong. Like he could he doesn't have to ever be held accountable. It's always somebody else's fault. You know, Shanann was the bad one. 
And things aren't black and white in this world, you know, but I think the family viewed Shanann as this evil person who came and took their son away. And again, they, there is no autonomy to Chris ever. It was like, oh, this evil woman came and took him, but there's never any discussion about Chris as an independent man who doesn't have to be swayed by another person, you know? So I think there's a lot of agency that's taken away from him that people tend to do, you know, that by making it into this black and white thing that, that this woman came and took him from his family and, you know, whatever. Um, Shanann's family, you know, obviously completely traumatized and devastated. And, you know, what these people have been through in these three years also because there's, you know, a lot of trolls or people who harass them and sent them death threats and all kinds of things that all these things they've subjected to is just awful. You know, their family was murdered in cold blood by the person they trusted who would take care of them and protect them. And, you know, they're still dealing with harassment. Um, it just, it just doesn't make any sense. So is his trial done or, or, or um, is, is he still in trial? No, he never went to trial because oh, that's right, because he played guilty. So that was why you know the, the documents were so public because it right. never went to right, trial. Right. It was all like, okay, he pled guilty, he went to jail, and then here's all the evidence and the body right. cameras. And I had a brain fart. I'm sorry. That's okay. We've been talking with Lena about the Chris Watts murder. Uh, Chris Watts in 2018 murdered his pregnant wife and two daughters. And uh, we've been having a nice, well, if you can say it's a nice conversation, but a very informative conversation about that. She has a book out about it called My Daddy's, My Daddy's a Hero. And uh, it's been an interesting talk with her. My question to you is, is there any way, like if you're married to somebody, are there any signs you could look for that somebody may have a psychopathic personality like that or no? There are, but you also could attribute it to something else. You know, like I say, the fact that Chris Watts, that everybody said they didn't really know him, even his mm -hmm. wife was like, oh, I can never get a reaction out of him. You know, like he's just sort of this flat person, mm -hmm. not showing emotion, you know, but that could also be the sign of something else. It doesn't have to be a psychopath. But in hindsight, you know, when you look at this case and you put all these pieces together, that would be one piece is that he never showed emotion, that people really didn't know him. He seemed to be mimicking Shanann a lot. Like he didn't seem to have his own identity or personality. He was just sort of like mimicking other people. Mm -hmm. Um so that would be one thing. Um, generally, I think from this case that people should pay attention to is the last six weeks where he flipped. I think that's the biggest indication is that somebody with normal attachments and care and empathy for the people in their life doesn't make a 180 like that, especially when their wife is pregnant, you know, mm -hmm. and no explanation. They just want to leave you. You know, that that's a big red flag that something else is going on, you know, and that, um, if somebody wants to leave, I say, let them leave. I don't blame Shanann. Um, she was pregnant. I don't blame her at all for wanting to make her marriage work. I would have done the same thing. Uh, you know, so I'm, there's no fault on her part whatsoever um, for trying to do everything she could to make the marriage work with Chris. But, you know, the more I study about this type of behavior, um, the more I realize, you know, if that ever happened to me, if some now knowing what I know, if somebody just wanted to leave like that and it was just a sudden change, I would be very suspicious. You know, not that they're going to murder me necessarily, but right that there's something else going on that's not right. And that if they could walk away from something like that without trying, something is not right. Something is going on. So sort of looking at, you know, those type of patterns that... Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But no, or generally, unfortunately, in this case, again, there was, I don't think there was any way anybody could have seen this coming. Absolutely no way. Um, it's incredible. Yeah. It's incredible. So what's next for you? You said you were writing another book? Yeah, it's already written. Um, it's coming out in April 2022. It's kind of interesting. And in the, the fact that we've been talking about social media, it's about narcissism on social media. So it's called okay. the Facebook narcissist um, and how to identify and protect your loved ones from social media narcissism. So it's going to look at all the aspects, 
a little bit of what you and I talked about tonight. Sure. Um, one of the chapters is about false narratives on social media. So that people who actually portray these really perfect idyllic lives and um, what's really behind that and the need to the need to always share or portray idyllic lives. You know, I also talk about influencers and celebrity culture and what's what this is doing to society. So it's just kind of, it's kind of a cultural commentary critique of, you know, what social media is doing to us and is it making mm -hmm. our culture more narcissistic and the dark side of it. So we'll have to have you on to discuss that book. Yeah. Happy to come on. That would be cool. People. That would be really cool. How can people find you? Oh, let's see. Um, LinkedIn, you can find me. That's probably, I, I'm, I actually try to keep a pretty low profile on social media, but I do have um, an author page on Facebook that I actually, my friend, my friend runs it for me. Very thankful to her. It's, I'm not very active on it, but she does, you know, pass on messages to me through that whenever she's on. And then I have an Instagram, which is therapy with Lena. Again, pretty okay. low key, but okay. that's, well, that's where I am. <laughs> well, thank you so much. And I would thank love you. to have you on again in April to talk about your other book because yeah, thank you. it would be fun that. to delve into that too. Yeah, thanks. I would love that. And thanks for um, having me on for this conversation. It's important, I think, too. It is very important. The word that, um, I do get, you know, messages from people in different parts of the world, you know, saying that, the book helped them leave a bad relationship. So I think uh -huh. that, you know, as we talk about this, that I think it's important um, not to scare people, but just to, you know, that people deserve better if they are being mistreated. So. Uh -huh. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Well, thank you and have a good rest of your evening. Thank it's you. late for you, 930 where you're at. So yeah, I'm about to go to bed. <laughs> yeah. We're at dinner time right now. So there you go. All right. Well, thank you, Lena. I appreciate it. Charlotte. Good night. Have a good one. Bye. All right, guys, that was a really good show and a really good speaker because that's something like she says that needs to come out that we have to hear about, you know, because you don't know what's going on in somebody's head and it doesn't take much to snap somebody in those kind of situations. Tomorrow's show is going to be a little a bit of a change and um, we're going to be talking with Nicholas Pearson uh, about crystal healing. And he's going, to t he's going to tell us ways that we can use crystals to our advantage, whether it's to uh, chase off unwanted, um, no, you know, unwanted spirit, unwanted ghosts and stuff like that, or whether to use it for healing for, you know, health healing things. So um, that'll be a good show tomorrow. That's going to be back on our regular time at 630. If you like the show, share it with five people. If you hated the show, share it with your enemies. Who cares, right? Just share it with your enemies. Um, we also are nonprofit. California Haunts is nonprofit. We're not one of the more wealthier teams. And uh, all this comes out of my pocket to keep this show going, which is internet, phone, whatever else, you know, to keep this thing going, my computer systems, mics. And I'd really appreciate it if you could find it in your heart to drop five, ten dollars or something off to us, you know, to help to help us out a little bit. That's at paypal.me at California Haunts. Also, our YouTube channel has issues. It's not just, it's not issue issues. We have 86 subscribers right now. And uh, we need a certain amount of number of subscribers in order to have a dedicated URL to our YouTube channel. Because uh, if you try to search these, these videos, if you try to find it, you try to Google, you do whatever, you're not going to find us. Because you don't get a dedicated URL on YouTube until you have over 100 subscribers. And that's what we're trying to get to right now because I want to get that dedicated URL. In the meantime, you can visit the radio show website at www.californiahauntsradio.com. And that will take you to the YouTube site. And you can subscribe from there to help us out with that. Anyway, I thank you all for coming. And I'm going to share her contact information and where to get her books with you guys. Or where to get her book, rather. And here's that information right now. That's www.lenaderholly.com. Books, the book is My Daddy is a Hero, and that can be gotten at Amazon. So we'll flip on over to Amazon and get her book. She's got in, she's got in Kindle format and all that good stuff. So you guys can get it there. Okay, and I will see you guys tomorrow at 6.30 p.m. Pacific. 
for another round of Let's Have a Good Radio Show. Anyway, I'm just teasing tonight. Uh, again, I will see you with Nicholas Pearson tomorrow, Crystal Healing. Have a good evening and later. <laughs>